I'd like to invite you on a walk. I was told that I needed money to survive. Later, I was told that when the money goes away, many of your friends go away. In light of this, I've been fortunate to find friends without money, or at least with relatively little of it relative to the communities that I am in. And yet, in material wealth, I remain one of the richest people to have ever existed in history. If you're listening to this, chances are the same is true for you. When I was a boy, my mother used to compare my circumstances to the circumstances of children in India or Africa. And that never struck me as a useful thing to do. First of all, it implied some sort of hierarchy, and that they were near the bottom, and that I would reach the bottom if I didn't do what I was told. Secondly, at the time, I had trouble imagining them. I could imagine the children that I saw on the streets of Malaysia, because I'd seen them. I could imagine the children of the families that we'd met from villages, or even more poor urban environments, because I'd met them. And yet, those children had clothes, had water, had food. They even had something of an education. Many of them could read and write. Notice another judgment there, that reading and writing puts you in a hierarchy above. That if you are illiterate, you are somehow unfortunate. I have met people who could barely read or write, yet put them in the forest, and they would find fruit, they would find bamboo, they would find flowers to eat, they would survive.
put me in the forest, and I was lost, distracted by the fear of dangerous insects and reptiles, distracted by the fear of being lost. So, the fortunate or unfortunate axis seemed to be about where you were at. And wherever my parents were, wherever the pillars of my community were, money seemed to matter. But when my parents lost a lot of their money, despite what my father said, it seemed to me that the relationships they'd built helped carry them through. I must admit that for most of my life, I have existed asymmetrically with money. That is, my relationship to it is a peripheral relationship. When I was a child, maybe the most direct thing I once did with money, besides burying it in various places, like a pirate, in stories that children are attracted to was burning some money. It seemed like adults really liked this thing and if it was just a piece of paper why is it that burning it created such a strong reaction in comparison to say the money, the fake money or we should say the money of the dead that many people in my community burned for their ancestors or even monopoly money. It appeared that they imbued part of themselves into this thing. And so I found myself dealing with it indirectly. I can't say I've ever wanted for it, really. Even when we had trouble getting food, other families would provide in the end. Sometimes our church, often our church, would help us. Later, as an adult in my, well, in some of my darkest times, when I'd given up on most of the world, I did have trouble getting food 
with money, but that did not stop me from finding food in the dumpster. So it seemed like no matter how little money I had, things were always kind of alright. Except for that one time, which was actually before the dark time, the, the thing that precipitated it, when I had swine flu, and the treatment cost way more than I had, and I had no health insurance at the time. So I went home and I cried. And then I proceeded to basically pass out for about a week or something. Um, you know, waking up every now and then to drink water, but definitely more than a few days where I was not conscious for more than 24 hours. So that would probably be the time that I felt the lack of money more than any other time in my life. And yet I survived. And probably because I survived, I can't say I'm too worried about money now, even though I also have no idea how I'm going to pay the rent next month. This is a sort of privilege. Not necessarily because of the money, but because of the lack of specifically focusing on getting food, water, and shelter for myself in the future. I may have spent perhaps a lot of time looking at how Buddhist monks and other ascetics have made their living. And maybe that is what I'm doing. Wandering around, living on the goodwill of humanity. Living on the goodwill of the people closest to me. If I am to go around talking about trust, then surely I must trust the world to provide for me, or more than the world. I trust myself to provide for me when the time comes. Based on the past, when I need something, I find a way to get it. When I need to die, I will die. When there is a need for a lot of resources, those resources 
will appear not out of thin air but because of the motivation to find them when they're needed. You know the story of the young fledgling careerist who's doing it to take care of their family whether their extended family or their immediate family in the form of a spouse or children what you might not know or not have framed in this way are the many ambitious people in history who finding a need in the environment met that need by going out and acquiring a lot of material wealth power land and so on while it seems very possible to acquire material wealth for the sake of acquiring material wealth it also seems like a less resilient method than acquiring it for something else attachment to any specific resource or outcome presents a rigidity which when subject to enough change opens one to a sudden break if you judge your value and your success by the numbers that show up when you look up your bank account then when there is a sudden onset of inflation or the agreements that hold the monetary system together start to fall apart then you will be devastated we have access to many natural experiments in the form of history when such a breakdown occurs the thing that people return to is their extended social networks the people around them whether it's disaster or war the relationships you have with the people around you determine your survival now you can sort of buy relationships but not really we might say that in our current society most relationships are bought in this way uh, especially the more transactionally people think of things the more this appears to be the case however introduce enough stress and relationships of this sort tend to fall apart introduce a disagreement 
about money and if the chief relationship is to money instead of the relationships themselves, then that relationship will perish in favor of the relationship with money. It's funny, this money. It gives us the illusion of independence at a time of greater interdependence than ever before. You choose not to see your friends and family as much because you think you don't need them. And we can appear to be independent by paying other people to do things for us that our clans or tribes might have done for us in the past. The specialization that results in the long term allows us to do things like choose to watch other people in fictional relationships or even real ones at a distance, what we might call parasocial relationships, while maintaining our relationship with money. Because the difficulty of an actual relationship with someone is too much and you can choose to buy the ability to opt out of it. Of course, for people who have gone through extreme poverty or people who have been in war zones for an extended period of time, this kind of trade-off does not happen as much because the actual relationship tends to be valued more than the transactional relationship that happens under a paradigm of money as a more fundamental value. You might be thinking, but what about the people I know who were poor? And to that I ask, have you actually met poor people? You might think I'm changing the definition, but I am merely looking at the broadest definition. Because when you ask about whether someone is poor, it's always about poor in relation to what? Poor in relation to who? And if we look at the mass of humans that have ever existed and compare our material wealth to them, then we are among the richest people to have ever lived. Even if you limit it to people who are alive, if you're listening to this, you are probably, almost certainly, in the top quarter of richest people in the world. And the thing about us as people is that we tend to not come into contact with people who are far away from our social networks. If you're in the United States, the chances of you coming upon someone who is living in a subsistence lifestyle are very low. Even if you befriend a homeless person, a homeless person in the United States lives very differently from a subsistence fruit picker in India.
Remember, our poor people have cars. Our poor people have TVs. Our poor people have McDonald's. This is not to say that their suffering is any less. I would even go far as to say that the richer you are, the more capacity for suffering you have. This is because the poorer you are, the more your suffering is tied to survival. Which means that when you have something that is causing a lot of anguish and anxiety, it often has a very grounded solution. If you don't have enough food, the moment you acquire food, you're going to be quite happy. If you don't have enough space, the moment you acquire space, you're going to be quite happy. The richer you are, the less tied to survival your suffering is. Which means you are free to live in your own personal hell for much longer uh, with no grounding in your survival. This is what the Buddhists might call samsara. It's probably also why in a lot of religious traditions being rich is tied to having a harder time achieving some sort of spiritual relationship with the world. So if you've never met anyone or met very few people who have been poor in the global sense of the term then you might never meet someone who is able to value things outside of the paradigm of money. Having this transactional relationship superimposed on everything you do with other people makes it difficult to ever surrender to the relationships we are in. Consider anxiety and depression. There is a pattern among people who suffer from panic attacks, especially those who've experienced a lot of trauma, of pushing people away. When oftentimes what they need more than anything else is literal human touch, feeling another heartbeat against theirs. But because of living in a transactional paradigm, the feeling of another person is simultaneously pushed away because we're used to thinking that we can have bits of people instead of all of them and only the bits that we like. This includes ourselves. So, in such a context, people are desperate for human connection, but due to being stuck 
in a transactional mode of being. They can't actually get it, even though it's all around them. The very attempt to have it your way, as in a Whataburger, whether you want it with an onion, without an onion, with jalapenos, without jalapenos, that very attempt prevents a full connection from happening. After all, if you were actually trying to survive, you would not care too much about what's on your Whataburger. You would take whatever someone offered and you would eat all of it. It is only because of our relative material wealth that we are able to look at each other and say, I like you when you do this, but not when you do this. You are a part of me when you do this, but not when you do this. So we might say that the egregore that is our civilization has successfully divided us to make us dependent on it as opposed to each other in the same way that a colonizing group might colonize another group by picking and choosing parts of it to enrich with material wealth so that that colonized group is divided. This is simultaneously a wonderful and terrible thing about civilization. There is so much beauty in how it shapes our every decision. It's yours and it is mine.